week of November 26th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 640, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And outside Macy's in New York City, I'm Michael Giltz, filled with the holiday spirit. Well, you're lucky you're filled with only the holiday spirit instead of helium, because I'll tell you, those Macy's people, they fill things with helium all the time, and they need like hundreds of people to like weigh them down so they don't fly off. Good improv, good improv. That's very good, Sperling. My brother and my mom, uh, you know, we're trying to entertain my mom who's 94, about to be 95 in like weeks. What are you going to watch with her, do with her? He ended up watching the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. He's like, why am I doing this? He was complaining about the host. They're all so excited by here. Oh, my God, a new, a new balloon. And he just, it drove him nuts. And yet, he helped contribute to the NBC's coverage of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, reached 28.5 million people, its largest audience ever, the highest rated entertainment program of the year, likely to be, I mean... Why? Why suddenly with the Thanksgiving Day Parade? I personally hate parades. I wouldn't want to be in one or watch one. I just feel it. It's so tiresome. Stand there and watch people go by. I I hate it. Have you ever watched it? Not only have I watched the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, but I actually worked for Macy's as a photographer. It was one of my first professional jobs. You were an elf. No, no. I was uh, one of their official parade photographers. Uh, Oh, fun. Yeah, when I was uh, a teenager and in college, and I would, uh, the day before, you know, you go to the balloon, you take pictures of the balloons being blown up. That's actually cool. The night before on the Upper West Side, I've been there. That's actually fun. All night long, it's late, it's cold, and people watch as they slowly inflate the balloons. So that that actually I enjoyed. But And then I would walk. Yes, I was a photographer. That's how I got started. Yeah, that's how I got into college. Um, And then uh, what I would do is I'd walk down in front of the parade uh, and sit there in Herald Square next to Willard Scott, of all people. If you remember, like it was him and- Of course. I can't remember who else- Of all people, he's one of the hosts of the media for many years. Yes, and and I would take pictures right there in Herald Square of, of all the things happening. It was- absolutely one of the most more interesting things I've done because you actually, for me at least at the time, I was like, wait, they're not really singing. They're lip syncing. (laughs) So so you're telling me you went to college. They saw your transcript. They're like, yeah, I don't know. I don't, mm, you know, any extra. No, you're like, well, I've got a camera. And they said, okay. No, actually what it was is I went to the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade when I was like 15 and I took photos on a rooftop from across Herald Square and I thought, you know, there's got to be a better way to get closer to the action. And then while leaving the parade that year, I saw somebody with an official photographer badge and I thought, well, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to be one (laughs) of those official photographer people. And so I called them up, found the parade, the, the group that does the special events, Asked mm-hmm. to come in and speak with them. And I guess they thought, this is so cute. Look at this 16-year-old mm-hmm. coming up and talking to us and asking us if he could just be an official photographer. Why not? Just let him do it. And they actually let sure. me do it for five years. I did it until yeah. I was like 22. 
I knew none of this when I brought this up. I'd forgotten this. If you've, you've probably told us before and it went in one year, went out the other. That's very cool. I mean, 28.5 million people, the most popular entertainment show of the year. That's more than the Oscars, more than the Grammys, more than the Emmys, more than the Tonys. All these big movie stars and pop stars, they should just forget them. They should have balloons come up and pick the awards. That would probably be more popular. In fact, if you add up the audience for the Oscars, the Emmys, and the Tonys, it's still less than the 28.5 million people who watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. What's your favorite balloon? Because I've made a list. I have ranked the Macy's Thanksgiving Day balloons from number one, Snoopy, obviously, all the way down to the I mean, rankings are out of control. The AV Club pegged, of course, to the new Ridley Scott film, ranked the 20 best screen performances of Napoleon. I didn't even know there were 20 different Napoleons on screen. Uh, The New York Times ranked the Thanksgiving episodes of Friends, way to go for the clickbait times on top of somebody's sad death. Rolling Stone ranks the 25 most anticipated holiday movies. They did go back to Which I would say, there are 25 holiday movies? Not holiday, movies coming out between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Uh, These are the movies coming out in theaters. There are barely 25 wide releases through the end of the year. The AP ranked every Thanksgiving dish. They ranked Thanksgiving dish, turkey, mashed potatoes. I mean, what? Green bean casserole ahead of apple pie and pecan pie? WTF? The AV Club even ranked studio logos. They had a top story. In their, le- in their newsletter. Oh. So little news that the week of Thanksgiving no. here in, in no. North America. It, this has nothing to do with Thanksgiving. This is list mania. It won't end. They're just, everybody does lists constantly all year long. The most ridiculous lists. Oh, my God. It gives me a headache. Please stop with the lists, said the guy who's about to file his list of the 125 top romance novels of all time to Parade.com. <laughs> I am, but my list is good. I didn't slap it out in five minutes. I spoke to authors and booksellers and wrote about people and and researched. It's actually good. So there you go. That's what you'll see when you go to Parade.com in a few weeks. But what are you going to hear about today on Showbiz Sandbox? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we have a list of the... No, just kidding. Uh, (laughs) We are uh, actually... We should have a list because we are sick of franchises and sequels. We are just sick of them. So, uh, actually, we're going to talk some more about all the franchises and sequels coming up in 2024, and we'll discuss all the franchises and sequels of 1983. Hey, the more Hollywood changes, the more it (laughs) pretty much stays like 1983. In any case, on Inside Baseball, we'll look at a grab bag of music news. It involves comedian Bo Burnham hitting a landmark on the Billboard charts, the performing rights organization BMI ditching its nonprofit status, Daryl Hall and John Oates in a cage match to the death. They're at each I other's can't throats. Go for that. No, no can do. I can't go for that. That's literally what they're saying now. They're, one is saying, <laughs> I can go for that. And the other, no, no, no can do. <laughs> in any case, BTS is heading off into the military and an Israeli, Israeli boy band that wants to symbolize the future of the Middle East. Interesting timing on that one. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. I'm still drinking my tea to get ready to do this. We are looking at box office around the world for the week ending November 26th. We're the only people 
who cover the entire week's box office because that's the only thing that makes sense. And when you look at the worldwide box office, The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, is the number one movie around the world. It grossed $98 million this week. It made about $98 million last week, so it's now at just under $200 million worldwide. It cost $100 million to make. So with that momentum and still the full holiday season to go, this look, it looks like it's going to be a winner. I, when it came out, I thought, I bet that falls hard and fast. I didn't think anybody cared about the prequel to The Hunger Games, but they have an audience. At number well, two and I will the say this. If you, look at, if you look at the way this movie was made, they did not go out and spend $500 million making this movie. They said, you know what? Let's make it for... It's hard to make an $80 million movie now uh, for when you have all of these people to pay off. But let's make a $100 million movie. And guess what? $200 million. Everything else is gravy from here on in. Well, not gravy. By our standards, you have to hit, you know, triple yeah, your budget know, four, in order yeah, to... Yeah. Right. Well, we don't want to... Is there a reason to change that? No. No, because you still no, have all the no. marketing. Right. Yeah. You have marketing and everything. And this movie, of course, does not have... The, there are some big stars in it, but it does not have the... Um, uh, big, you know, big budget stars that you might have in a long running franchise. You know, they got to start from scratch, but it's not really that different from the other movies. I mean, the Hunger Games cost eighty million. It was not a big budget movie. Catching Fire one thirty, Mockingjay one thirty, one sixty for two parts. So you know, this is uh, right about where those movies are. They started to cost a lot more once you had to pay Jennifer Lawrence a lot more, deservedly so. So this movie is right in line with the level of quality in terms of scope that the other movies were. But you right. can't make a Star Wars movie for $100 million. But that's talking about Disney, and we'll get back to them in just a moment. So I just want to make sure, you know, that it's not like they sh could have, you know, all the others cost a lot more and they got smart. No, it's about what they've been spending. Hunger Games is at $200 million worldwide. Ridley Scott's film Napoleon, $80 million worldwide on its opening week. Disney wishes they had that sort of good news for those two movies. Wish, their latest animated film, opened up to an extremely weak $49 million worldwide. Look at Trolls Band Together, the second in that film series, I think. Uh, that made $38 million this week. It's at $150 million worldwide. We don't know its budget, but that's a, a cheaper animated film. It cost about $100 million to make. Arguably, Disney can't get away with making less expensive animated movies. I don't know if that's true. I feel like maybe it is. Their brand is lavish and deluxe. Tr and Trolls Band Together is the third entry into the franchise because the second uh, entry went straight to video during the COVID. It was like supposed to come out right at, at the time of uh, the, the, lockdown. the lockdown. And the and Universal went, we know what to do. We own a video on demand company. So let's let's put it on video on demand. Right. The original made $350 million worldwide. The second one went straight to streaming. And now we have the third one at $150 million and counting. We'll have to see where it ends up, but it's going to end up higher probably than Wish, though Disney is saying it's not in a lot of territories. So that $49 million is misleading. It didn't open up wide in terms of everywhere in the world. There are a lot no, of No, only about 40% of territories. 40 Right, so they've got a lot of countries to go, and they're hoping that just like Elemental, which was a flop turned not so bad, not huge hit, but not so bad, uh, they're hoping that the, this movie can pull that off as well. Certainly, that will be a hard case to make for The Marvels, another Disney film. That made $27 million this week. It's falling hard and fast. It's at $187 million worldwide. 
Uh, here's some more good news, but it's part of a franchise of sorts. Across the Furious Sea is the third in a loose trilogy of movies um, from a, a well-known Chinese director who's never quite crossed over to the U.S. This movie opened up on Saturday, and it made $25 million on Saturday and Sunday. It opened up on Saturday. There's no particular holiday going on here, so I'm not sure why. But when you look at China, you will often see um, or, or India, we had a movie open up on Sunday because of Diwali, but we have also seen movies opening on Tuesday, Monday, Wednesday. The movies can open any day of the week. If you know why Across the Furious Sea opened up on Saturday in China, tell us. Yes, you can send your carrier pigeons to no, just kidding. Uh, you can email us though, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. <laughs> I just wanted to I was watching Michael's face. We can see each other now uh, when we do this through uh, our podcasting platform squadcast. And when I started out uh, with the carrier pigeons, the expression on his face was like, wait, what huh? what just happened? Uh, in any case, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com, D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can call, leave us a voicemail. 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter.com. Okay, Twitter.com. Our handle there is Showbiz Sandbox. And we're on Facebook where our handle is also Showbiz Sandbox. That's right. So we're back on the charts. Across the Furious Sea made $25 million just from two days. Thanksgiving, the horror flick, made $16 million. It's now at $30 million and counting. But of course, Thanksgiving is over. Will it play more like a horror film in general, or will it play more like a Thanksgiving film? We'll have to see if it falls off the charts. In Korea, we have some very good news. The, uh, the biggest hit in a long time for the Korean box office. It's 12-12 the day. This is a Korean drama about the sad day on December 12th in 1979 when there was another military coup in that country. Originally, I saw that it had made $12 million, and I was like, that's perfect. 12-12, and it opens to $12 million. I'll remember that forever. Unfortunately, there was some Wednesday and Thursday grosses, and the total is actually $14 million. So I will never be able to remember how much 12-12 the day made, but I will remember that the Korean box office is showing some signs of life, and that is good news. Five Nights at Freddy's is still out, $11 million this week. It's at $283 million worldwide. It will, of course, cross the $300 million mark, and that means we'll be seeing six nights at Freddy's, I assume, down the road. Who's the Suspect or Last Suspect, another Chinese film? That's about to hit $80 million. Another Chinese movie, She is Magnificent. Couldn't figure out what this was about. Couldn't find a Chinese title for it. Couldn't find it on YouTube or IMDb or anywhere, but it opened. $8 million, so Chinese viewers found it at least. And another Chinese film, Beyond the Clouds, uh, that opened up, I think, on Saturday or Sunday last, uh, last week. And now it's made another $6 million, so that is at $8 million and counting. Scrolling down the list, Killers of the Flower Moon passes the $150 million mark. Not so great for a movie that costs $200 million. Another hit in China is Seven Killings and the Japanese animated film, which is called... It's a very long title. New Dimension, Crayon Shinshan. Uh, what is it? Uh, the movie, Battle of Supernatural Powers, Flying Sushi. It's all one title for this Japanese Maybe film. Several shorts, like ganged together. Who knows? <laughs> it's not, but it made $5 million. It's about a little kid who helps uh, save Japan when they're under threat, and, or the earth, I should say, maybe. And it made more money than Wish did when it opened up in China. Disney did have enough time to promote that movie properly, I believe. So this is a, a definite, you know, in-your-face example of how much Disney has fallen right now. This used to be 40% of the box office. They have a year of terrible news, 
And they don't have another movie coming out for, I think, like five or six months. So we'll get to Disney in a moment. Here's a movie I'm not happy about. It's The Holdovers, directed by Alexander Payne, starring Paul Giamatti and a very good Dominic Sessa. It made $5 million this week, a terrific hold. It's at $13 million and counting. I, this movie is an end-of-the-year hopeful, an Oscar hopeful. I saw this sucker playing and having nice legs, playing steadily throughout the holiday season into next year. And guess what? The studio is putting it out for rent on Tuesday. So tomorrow, by the time you hear this, the 28th of November, they're like, yeah, yeah, you can rent it. I, I, nobody is demanding that they rent this movie right now. Surely it would be more valuable the longer it played in theaters, the better buzz it got, the more people that saw it in a crowd, and the better it did with critics. So why rush it out now? Is there a huge demand for the newest movie? No. No, I can so tell you why. I think, um, and, and I agree with you, by the way. So let's start from that. I totally yeah. agree with you. Uh, I think that, as you know, we're about to talk about franchises. And you know, Michael, when Hollywood finds something that's successful, like, I don't know, off the top of my head, streaming services, once one person is successful, one company is successful. But, Everybody but races not. to do the same. Well, just just hear me out here. Everybody races to okay. do the same thing, right? Everybody copies each other. So mm -hmm. here comes, you know, uh, Universal Pictures or Focus in this case, they and they start putting their stuff on premium VOD 17 days later, 20 days later. And they say, oh, we are so successful with this. We're not cannibalizing the movies. We're finding a whole new audience. Meanwhile, you have all of the other studios that have tried streaming, uh, uh, you know, fast streaming or, or day and date streaming. And they've all said, yeah, that doesn't work at all, at all. It totally doesn't work. So they've all gone back to longer release windows. They're, the only company that's still doing it happens to be one of the few companies like Comcast that owns a cable company and a premium video on demand platform. That's why they're doing this. Now, Let's talk about the holdovers for a Who second. Who is it? This Who's is the movie. company? Comcast. Comcast is- Oh, they own, well, they, they, own, they own holdovers? Well, they own Universal. They own Focus. So yeah, that's why they're doing this. That is exactly oh, why. And by the way, it's going to be available for rent and digital sell-through. So it's not just the $20 premium play. It's also available to rent this week. Oh, what a mess. I will say this. Apparently, exhibitors- knew about that, the whole renting thing early on, not just for pre premium video on demand, but the renting. And early on, long before, like two, three months out, people had seen the holdovers, the film buyers at, at uh, movie theater chains had seen it. And they were talking to me about this movie and they were like, you know, this is a perfect movie. And this is in total agreement with what you're saying, Michael, a perfect movie. It's really good. It is really great. And it will open small. But that's not where the money is. It's not about the opening. It's about the holding. No pun intended, given that it's called The Holdovers. This is a movie that would play for three months and make $100, $150 million if they didn't do what well, they were Well, no, to do. no, I, no. I don't know it would make $100, $150 million, but it, it, you, know, you never know what it's going to do with Oscars and end-of-the-year lists and all that sort of stuff. But it would make more money be seen be more its profile is high more valuable more word of mouth so when it does come to streaming no matter what it grossed it's had months and months of free promotion people paying to see it telling their friends about it critics writing about it and that constant advertising that comes from being in a movie theater right and and all of the film buyers were just complaining the whole time about how they're going to have to by week four get it off their screens because it will completely and totally collapse because it's available at home yeah. 
Uh, I think it's a big mistake. Uh, they're losing money. It's not that they're being savvy business-wise and we're, and we're weeping. It's like, no, you're being dumb business-wise. You're, you know, cutting off your nose to spite your face, as they say. Also doing a similar move uh, in very different circumstances is Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift, the heiress tour, made another $5 million. It's at $249 million worldwide. It's just $12 million away from beating the Michael Jackson music doc and becoming the highest grossing music doc concert film of all time. And yet, Taylor took to social media and said uh, she's putting the movie out for streaming on December 13th. That's like two weeks away with three new songs that weren't in the theatrical cut. So there'll be something new to say. and. I'm not trying to diss Taylor, but it really takes guts to uh, pitch putting your movie on streaming and say, okay, now you can rent it as like a gift. She's like, well, so basically I have a birthday coming up December 13th, and I was thinking a fun way to celebrate the year we've had together would be to make the Eras Tour concert film available for you to watch at home. Is it, like, is oh it available God. on streaming services or is it available to services. rent? Services. To, to rent. What do you mean? No, no, to, to rent. Yes, you, you, you okay. rent it. I'm sure you okay. could buy it too, but yeah, it's to rent or buy. It's not It's not on Netflix. It's going to be available to buy via Apple or Amazon or whatever you want to do. Yeah, but, All right. but the idea of so like, oh, here's I, a gift, here's a so gift for me. Buy it again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what you should really God do is just put the three new, film, three new songs into another like revised theatrical release. Exactly. And then you'd crush the other movie and become the biggest of all time. So you've only got like two more weekends to do it, Taylor. Maybe in January they'll add a fourth new song. Anyway, Saltburn is a movie just like The Holdovers that is benefiting from being in theaters. It made $4 million this week. The Barry Keegan starring movie directed and written by Emerald Fennell. It's at $6 million total. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Slightly mixed reviews, but again, a critic favorite and a movie that benefits from a long run at the box office because that can only raise its profile. So when it comes out on a streaming service or for rent, people go, oh yeah, I've heard of that. Rather than what? <laughs> scrolling down trying to find any other stories here um the boy in the heron is not on our list this week uh this movie has disappeared for two weeks from the box office i can't believe it fell off the charts in korea but i didn't get any numbers in korea i can't believe it fell off the charts anywhere else two weeks ago we had it at 89 million dollars worldwide now uh, uh, the only places i can find it are like wikipedia which was trailing behind our info they said it's still at 81 million has it stopped making money in the last two weeks? Of course not. So I don't know what's going on here, but it opens up in North America, I believe, on December 8th, and I'm looking forward to checking it out. Disney's like, please, let's not have yet another movie make more money than ours. <laughs> They've really had a bad year, haven't they? What movies have they had in 20... L talk, name the flops that Disney has had in 2023. Well, I'm going to start with... Next goal wins because I liked this movie a lot. I thought it was it was a lot of fun. Is that a Disney movie? Well, it's Searchlight Pictures. So okay. yes, yeah. And I really enjoyed it. Uh, everybody, I was you know saw it in a crowded theater, and everybody thought, "Hey, we didn't think that movie was going to be as good as it is." Uh, I mean, is it a masterpiece? No, but it's a fun movie. And yet, six million dollar total worldwide. Well, so far, it made another $3 million this week. It had $3 million before that. Word of mouth will be good, and I bet 20 years from now, it will be on the list of the best sports movies of all time. 
You know, yeah, maybe because there aren't a lot of great sports movies. Rudy did not make a lot of money at the box office, and now that's right near the top of them among the best sports. This is not a great sports film, but like Cool Runnings and some others, it's just a charmer that people will always want to watch. But I was thinking of the big Disney movies: Wish, The Marvels, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, The Haunted Mansion, Ant Man and the Wasp: Quantum Mania. All flops. They have like three films that they can point to as maybe hits. The live action, what, like Little, Little Mermaid, Mermaid, maybe. Yeah, Little Mermaid, which which was not a huge flop. That's all they can say. It cost anywhere from two hundred and forty million to three hundred million dollars. It only grossed five hundred and seventy million dollars. That's not a hit. It just wasn't. You know, Elemental. It cost two hundred million dollars and it grossed five hundred million dollars, close to being a hit from theaters alone. They clearly won't lose money on that, and audiences ultimately reacted to it. But that's not really a hit hit from box office alone. What's their one hit film of the of the last 12 months? Guardians of the Galaxy. It's a Marvel That's right. Film. Volume three, $250 million it cost, and it grossed $850 million. Again, less than the last Guardian of the Galaxy, but that's an actual win. And then what happened after that movie? James Gunn left for DC. So the one good thing they could point to, yeah, and he's working for the other guys now. So it is a bad, bad year for Disney. And it, again, it's like six months before they have another movie out. In China, uh, Across the Furious Sea was a hit, and their box office is showing signs of life. They haven't passed us yet, but they, they hit a big milestone this week, didn't they? That's right. They passed. Yeah, I guess the seven- they, they passed the $7 billion mark, which uh, I think you know was, was one of their higher, I think they reached $8 billion before the pandemic, and now they're... Oh, I think they're basically think even more than that. Yeah. I think they hit more than $8 billion in the pandemic because they were getting ready to pass us. But where's North America at so far? That's where they are at right now, $7 billion. And then we've still got a month to go with a lot of box office. What about North America? Where is it at? I wish you would have asked me that before we started recording. Now I'm going to have to go look it up. I know that uh, it's we about hope to- $8 billion, $8.1 okay. billion. Oh, it's right there. So, right there in the notes, if I could read. Yes. Okay. U.S. <laughs> it's not us. It, it's U.S. That's what that stands for. Okay. Yes. So North America is at $8.1 billion, but people are saying, oh, superhero fatigue, franchise fatigue. Hollywood has to learn its lesson. And so I'm really looking forward to all the original fresh movies that Hollywood has in the pipeline. Uh, the two new movies that just announced their, their, their happening uh, struck me. And then we've got the whole list of movies coming out in 2024 and the end of this year. Tell us, Sperling, about all the exciting, never imagined movies that Hollywood is tackling in a bold 1970s sort of vibe. Well, okay, you've got some really good news here for you, Michael, if that's mm-hmm. what you're looking for, because you've yep. got, get this, a new Superman is on the way. So it's brand uh-huh. new, brand new, okay. Uh, a new, brand new Jason Bourne movie. Now, it's brand new, not, not rehash or anything like that. It's a brand new movie, like All spanking right. new, like right out of the box. Okay, and get this, Ralph Macchio is teaming up with Jackie Chan on a new Karate Kid movie. Brand new, brand new Karate Kid movie. Shouldn't, shouldn't it be called uh, the Karate Grandpa by this stage or something? Or Karate Dad? Kid might th- be a bit I of a stretch. Yes. It, Even for Ralph Macchio. All right, get going. Go faster. Well, those are just some franchises in the works. Coming out, here's what you got. Got a new Godzilla, a new Willy Wonka called Wonka, a new Spidey Universe movie, a new Dune 
uh, a new Ghostbusters, a new Kung Fu Panda, a new Omen, another Godzilla versus Kong, a movie version of The Fall Guy, which actually is kind of new, a new Garfield, which, well, a new Planet of the Apes, and a new Mad Max, a new Inside Out movie from Pixar, a new Bad Boys movie with Will Smith and Martin Lawrence, a new Quiet Place, a new Despicable Me, a new Twister, a new Deadpool, a new Captain America, a new Alien, a new Beetlejuice, a new Transformers, a new Joker movie, a new horror flick called Smile. The last one was uh, just a couple of years ago. A new ter- Terrifier though I've never heard of Terrifier 1, 2, or 3, by the way. A new Evil Within, a new Lion King movie, because, you know, that movie needed a sequel, and a new Venom, 28 movies, (laughs) one every other week, all brand new, Michael, and just for you. I like the ones you defended were uh, a new Fall Guy. Okay, that's based on a TV show, so that's original. <laughs> that's like the best you could come up with. That's like that's like Barbie. That's an ori- Barbie is an original film. It's not a franchise, no. technically. Even though there have been like 100 Barbie animated movies, this one is an original film that's very different from all of those. But in fairness, as I would always argue, King Kong had a sequel out about six months later. Back in 1933, Hollywood has done franchises and sequels and spinoffs since time began. There are so many movies that you could name, French series, shorts, movies, the Blondie movie. I mean, there's just a million of them. And so I thought, well, you could do this in 1933 or 1953 or 1983. And I thought, well, what else 40 years ago? So I went to the top movies in 1983 and what came out among the top films of the year, Return of the Jedi, the third Star Wars. Octopussy and Never Say Never Again, the 13th and 14th James Bonds, Sudden Impact, the fourth Dirty Harry, and Staying Alive, the sequel to Saturday Night Fever. Those are in the top 10. Also out in 1983, Amityville 3D, Jaws 3D, a sequel to The Black Stallion, another Bill Cosby concert film, a remake of Breathless with Richard Gere, he was nude in the shower, Curse of the Pink Panther, another Hound of the Baskervilles, an Indiana Jones ripoff for Tom Selleck called High Road to China, which counts as an original film, Psycho 2, a remake of Scarface, Smokey and the Bandit 3, The Sting 2, Superman 3, a remake of To Be or Not to Be by Mel Brooks, Twilight Zone the movie, another Winnie the Pooh animated movie, and Two of a Kind, the sequel to One of a Kind, No, I'm kidding. That's just a reunion with John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John. But yes, the more Hollywood changes, the more it stays the same. And one thing that doesn't change is that when people say something about politics or the world at large, they can get into trouble or they can get credit for being ahead of the curve and saying something positive and win more fans or lose fans. And that's what we're seeing with the Israel-Hamas conflict. Uh, Just two of the many things that have happened. Susan Sarandon was dropped by UTA after remarks she made. And actor Melissa Barrera of In the Heights suddenly found out she was dropped from the upcoming film Scream 7 for her social media posts on the Israel-Hamas conflict. Cancel culture! Um, (laughs) By the way, it's... Yeah, there's, you know, all I can say is for people who think this is some new crazy thing... Vietnam, the Vietnam War, believe me, people said things, it was polarizing, people lost jobs, people gained currency, people lost work they might have gotten otherwise. I mean, it was an ugly time. Whenever there's a big international conflict, people will speak out and they may well pay a price. Well, I mean, 
two two words for you, Jane and Fonda. Put them in any order you'd like, uh, <laughs> because that's exactly what happened to her after you know. I think it was the nineteen seventies and nineteen seventy two. She was not, she was labeled Hanoi Jane, and then for five years she was kind of a persona non grata in Hollywood. She went overseas and worked a lot, but uh, she kind of paid a price there, and then kind of came back to Hollywood in the late seventies. Without compromising her principles. She was happy to do that. Yes, she was Hanoi Jane because she unwisely went to North Korea and posed on like uh, a gun, (laughs) you know, that they were uh, a gun that was being firing against American troops and whatever you felt about the war, palling around with them was not the smartest thing to do in the way that she did it. Complicated war. But even that, I think she said, well, that wasn't the best idea. But her opposition yeah. to the war, many, many people today would say, well, she was on the correct side. But the point is, people are allowed to speak out. Companies and other people are allowed to say, I don't want to work with you, or I do want to work with you. That's what's going to happen. And nothing has changed today. This is not some crazy new world that we're in. This is the way life is. Uh, it's, it's unpleasant and unhappy. It's a shame there's conflict and division, but there you go. But somebody losing work or an agent, well, Susan Sarandon is going to be just fine. She doesn't need UTA. Uh, UTA also, I guess, doesn't need her. And they feel like it's better for them for business to not be in business with her. But it's, it's, a, it's a big deal when you say something and you pay a price for it. That's something that a lot of people are willing to do. Well, if you think that's a big deal for Susan Sarandon, I wonder what you think of some of our stories in Big Deal or Big Whoop. Big Deal or Big Whoop is our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Here's our first story. And well, it's about how much money is being spent on streaming content. Uh, well, really on content in general in the European Union. The European Audio Visual Observatory. They sound like they would, you know, use the Hubble telescope to like do their work. In fact, they study the movie and TV market. According to their new survey of spending in 2022, and this is content production and distribution spending, the streaming slice of the budgetary pie for original movies and TV exploded. It accounted for 24% of all money spent in Europe. That includes the UK, by the way, and adds up to more than $20 billion. Broadcast still spent three times as much on content as global streamers, about 15 billion plus versus 5 billion. Among global streamers, guess what? Netflix accounts for 45%, but that's down from about 60% one year earlier as Amazon Prime and others step up. So essentially the pie is growing. It's not that Netflix is spending less. It's a big deal or a big whoop? Uh, It's a big deal, I think. Um, And of course, as you clarified, it's not just the EU, it's all of Europe, including the United Kingdom. Uh, So it's 24% of all monies is going strictly for original stuff uh, original original stuff being created. So we're not talking about acquiring stuff. It's not the budget you spend to acquire, say, reruns of Friends or The Big Bang Theory. This is about original TV shows and movies you create for those markets. 24% of the money is being spent directly for streaming originals. That's a lot of money. What about North America? How much of the pie is that slice? No idea. Tried to find it out. Uh, Sperling already gave the info. But if you know, tell us or point us in the right direction. Yeah, you know, uh, the whole Brexit thing, you know, there was... The whole Brexit thing, you mean that disastrous uh, steps that well, the Conservative Party yeah, took well, in the UK that, has, that, that had paid a political and economic price for the last, you know, years now? Yeah, that thing. 
Well, the the unspoken uh, kind of casualties of this are people like the European Audiovisual Observatory, which create these lovely graphs and charts of of all these facts and figures that then feed into the European Union's parliament and so that they have all the the data to to kind of back up some of their decision making. Well, all of a sudden they have to now create these like three different charts, the UK, the UK <laughs> with the EU, and what would it be, what it would be like if the UK and the EU were combined. It was just like un- like I oh I thought oh yeah, that's right. This used to be one page of data. Now it's 19 pages of data because of Brexit. It's annoying, but that's well done on the list of the problems with Brexit, I would say. Yeah, well, of course. Uh, Doctor Who. And I say, Doctor Who? Well, Doctor Who has returned to save the day in three new specials starring David Tennant. Next year, for its 60th anniversary, we'll have a new doctor in actor Nakuti Gatwa of Sex Education. The first special aired on Saturday on the BBC in the United Kingdom, and for much of the rest of the world, it was on Disney+. And that's where the bad guys come in. Exterminate! Exterminate! No, 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 no. Not, not the Daleks, Michael. Oh, but Daleks, Disney, Daleks, 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 you know. Not a Disney, tomato, I'm not a Doctor I, Who fan, I guess. All right. <laughs> you, say, you say tomato, Daleks, whatever. It's negotiated all new deals. This is Disney. They negotiated all new deals with the writers. And in the wake of the WGA strike in the U.S., one supported strongly by the unions in the United Kingdom, by the way, the Doctor Who deal, not a good deal. That's according to a story on Deadline. Writers on Doctor Who have enjoyed 60 years of residuals. The shows are aired over and over again on TV, cable, streamers, sold on Blu-ray, DVD, and the like. Doctor Who marathons are kind of a thing. The WGA fought hard to get some residuals based on the popularity of a show on a streamer like Disney+. But Disney's New Deal does away with that. It doesn't matter if 20% of subscribers in North America watch the new specials. Writers get a larger lump sum up front, and that's it. They're done. Writer, writing for Doctor Who used to mean a lifetime of residuals. Now the money is like the TARDIS, larger on the outside and much, much smaller on the inside. Big deal or big whoop? I should say it's, it's uh, like the TARDIS in reverse, but uh, I think it's a big deal. The Writers Guild of Great Britain has weighed in. They were quoted in the article. They ask writers, uh, this is the first we've heard of this. Please come forward confidentially so we can look at this deal more closely. But if these details are accurate, it's a huge step backwards. So Disney clearly wants to have another strike in Europe. Well, so, you know, the interesting thing with all of the residuals is that you could actually track out how much money you would make from a specific show if you got credit for writing the teleplay for, let's say, Who's the Boss? You'd know, okay, the first time it airs, I get X, then the second time it airs, I get Y. And then over the years, you could track out all the way through through its lifetime how much you would make. So that's what they were trying to replace with this strike. So I do wonder, by the way, in the UK, they could do the same thing and they would know like, hey, the upfront fee needs to be X if it's going to replace the lifetime that I would have gotten. Well, but yeah, but you can't predict a show in advance how many years it's going to air in syndication or what its value is on streaming versus syndication. Whatever. You know, but yes, it's worth more. You're going to, it's like a lottery lump sum. You know, would you rather have $1,000 a week for life or would you rather have $50,000 up front? Assuming right. the show lives as long as you do, you'd in many cases prefer that steady residual because that's what helps you survive and getting a lump sum, even if it's the same amount, isn't necessarily the best thing for you. 
And once you're doing different shows, it really adds up. But yes, uh, they did not try and say, well, we know you would be paying you $137,000 over the next 30 years. So here it is all at once. It's like, no, that's not right. how it worked. They just and said, by the way, we're not giving you that. So we'll give you 50000 up front rather than twenty. Right. Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly right. They said you would have made $137,000. So here you go. Here's a much smaller amount that is bigger than the initial amount that you would have received when you would have received more money. Oh, by the way, yeah. the tax consequences for that are yours. So good luck. <laughs> yeah. Now, the sphere in Las Vegas, we've talked about this, this thing before. By the way, did you watch the, uh, I think we talked about this maybe last week. I don't know if we talked about it, but the, uh, the Formula One. Maybe we did talk about it. The Formula One race in Las Vegas. We did yep. talk about it because the sphere played an integral part of that race because it would like give you updates. And this giant sphere in Las Vegas would like be like, oh, guess who's the number one in the pole position now? You know, and they'd have like the person's picture and it was huge. I mean, it was just a gimmick. It wasn't crucial. It was just a gimmick. Oh, I'm not saying it was crucial. It was a total gimmick. Oh. Well, you said gimmick. it was all right. You said it was a key part. It was just a gimmick. Oh, yeah. I'm yeah. It was well, a key part of the visual aspect of it for television viewers. Because I see, yeah, I see. Okay. it was yeah. just a fun thing they could cut to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and then as they rounded the the first co- corner, you know, it would be there like, oh, yeah, there it is. Uh, the sphere in Las Vegas. We, it opened what like uh, in September. Uh, uh, you know. August, something like that. And they opened with a flashy series of concerts by the rock group U2. And despite going way over budget in its construction and costing, you know, a cool $2.3 billion for a venue that seats 18,600 people, its owner, MSG, Madison Square Garden, they want to build more. They laid their eyes on London. They said, oh, that would be a good good idea. Let's, let's go build one in London. And London said, hey, no. No, we don't want it. A proposal to build a second sphere in East London was rejected for multiple reasons. First and foremost, it would be a disaster for hundreds of residences and businesses nearby, since the sphere is famous for its eye-catching and light-intensive displays seen far and wide. Remember, this is a big, giant dome with hundreds, if not thousands, of LED displays on the outside. So oh, it looks thousands and thousands, yeah. Maybe yeah. tens of thousands, yeah. Yeah. The people actually living and working in the area wouldn't be as thrilled by those same light shows as they are, say, in Las Vegas, where the sphere is far away from the center of residential life. Second, the sphere sucks up massive amounts of power and electricity to power those thousands of LED screens and has no plans to be sustainable either in its construction or its operation. When told no, MSG huffed and said plenty of other forward-looking cities would be happy to welcome it. No word like if Dubai. they requested. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like Dubai or, yeah. Uh, they, you know, they requested any, uh, I don't know if they requested any help by a tax breaks or, or infrastructure, but really, shouldn't they wait to see if, if the first fear proves a success before, I don't know, building more? And is this a big deal or a big whoop? Uh, it's a big deal that London rightly said no, especially given the neighborhood. Um, it's a big deal because I don't think the first sphere can be a success without building another 10 or 20 spheres around the world. You know, if you design a show just for one venue, that's going to cost a lot of money. So you two, you know, if they can go to 20 spheres around the world and sell out everywhere, well, then you got a, a potential moneymaker. If you have to stay in one place, you know, residency in Las Vegas, that's not unusual, that happens. But for a lot of acts who want to move around and do places, maybe this sphere doesn't even work unless they have a string of them. So that, you know, like an IMAX screen, if you have one IMAX screen, 
People aren't going to create as much content as they will if you have a thousand IMAX screens all over the world. I think that's what's going on here. And is this sucker ever going to pay back? You can look at my notes for the numbers, but I'm like, all right, 18,000 seats, $300 per seat that you get five and a half million dollar gross per show. So after a hundred performances, you get half a billion dollars. So 400 performances, you gross $2.2 billion. So after 400 performances of sold out $300 a seat ticket minimum, you know, or, you know, average, you have grossed the amount of money you needed to spend to build it, but you got to pay everybody. The artists get money, the staff, the maintenance, how much are you going to pull in from every concert? Do you get 20% of the gross? Will that be your net? I don't know how, what the expenses are, but let's pretend it's 20% of the gross. That means you would need 4,000 sold out performances at $300 a ticket just to pay off the cost of building it, not counting interest. 4,000 performances. U2 has gave 36 performances. That's how many performances they have scheduled. No other acts have been named yet. And other stuff that they do, like show films made for the venue, they're not going to pull anywhere near those dollars. So this sucker is a white elephant. And I don't think even if they built, we're going to build another $2 billion in all of Dubai and wherever else you can build it, good luck. You know, uh, yeah, you're right. The, the way they were going to make money is by not spending $2.3 billion on the second, third, fourth one. <laughs> That's- and, and, and that would eventually pay off. And then, of course, all the profits from that would roll back into built, having built the first one. You know, the first time you build something, it's always the hardest kind of thing. But uh, I, I, you know, the other thing they were doing, of course, is that you would take that show, whatever show you did for Las Vegas, and you'd be able to do it in London or Paris or wherever you have one of these spheres, right? Uh, and it would just get cheaper to do one of those productions. Uh, in fact, for years, there has been right outside of Burbank Airport here in Los Angeles, a little sphere that they put up. And I was always like, what is that little bubble right next to the airport? What is that thing? And then I drove by it a couple weeks ago and it said on the outside, MSG Sphere Productions. And I was like, oh, that's where they're doing all the production work for the, per- for the shows that take place at the sphere in Las Vegas. They actually built a little mini version of it you know, kind of enclosed where they didn't have to do the outside work. And uh, that's where they do do all the AV work. But you're right. I mean, I don't know. They really need to build other ones to make the first one a success. That's not a good business model, I don't think. Yeah, no, it's not a business model, especially when you spent $2 billion on a white elephant. I think you just suck it up, make it this unique thing that you go to Vegas to do have enough people go there that you, you know, you get a long residency like Celine Dion, just get someone to come there and sit down, not for 36 shows, but for two years and build a show around them. Cause otherwise the expense of creating the show just creates more problems in terms of making the sucker pay off, but it ain't going to pay off for many, many years. Plus, have you seen any of the footage of you two performing there? It's like, they're so teeny, teeny, tiny, right? They're so tiny out on the stage. Then they've got this giant, giant, giant screen. It's like, wait, Am I paying to see a giant screen or these these two little dots on stage? It's it's just very. It's weird. not it, it's not a big venue. If you go to Madison Square Garden in New York City, they look like tiny people when you're in the upper deck. Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to look at the video screen. I had a friend who went and he thought it was awesome. He was also stoned, but he did think it was awesome. He doesn't think <laughs> it's the future of concert going, but as a one off thing, he thought it was pretty cool. Well, it sounds very uh, insidery. Like he was literally inside the sphere. That's right. 
Yeah, which means it's time for Inside Baseball. See my horrible transition there? You like that? Keep going. Even better when I point them out, by the way. Uh, It's time for Inside Baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and, more importantly, how they affect you. Now, we're going to do a music grab bag. Bo Burnham went platinum. Hall & Oates went bust again. BMI is dumping its nonprofit status, and a boy band hopes to bring a little sanity to the Middle East. Heck, if you could bring it to the planet Earth, I'd be happy, okay? Uh, Bo Burnham. (laughs) Yeah. Here's the thing. Yeah. You want me to start with Bo Burnham, maybe? Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, he is on a roll. Not with anything new, but with his last project, the Grammy and Emmy-winning Pandemic Special Inside, and its accompanying album of comic numbers. First, the album has been number one on the Billboard comedy charts for a record-setting 122 weeks. In other words, for the past two years and counting. Second, the album has just been certified platinum for sales of 1 million copies, or to be more precise, for sales and the streaming equivalent that add up to 1 million copies when you add them and divide by two on a Thursday. Yeah, it's (laughs) however they calculate it now. It's the first comedy album to go platinum in 15 years. The last one, Dane Cook's album, Retaliation in 2005. Burnham isn't working on anything that we know about at the moment, so we'll just have to hope he's enjoying this success rather than freaking out about how we can possibly follow it up. I mean, right, unless, yeah. you know, he, he did what? He was in a pandemic, so maybe get another pandemic going and he'll stay inside and uh, maybe he'll make a movie called Go or, or a, an album called Outside. I don't know. <laughs> uh, 2005 is the last time a comedy album went platinum. That's 18 years. People have been born and graduated college since the last comedy album went platinum. So that is a hell of an achievement. I think because you're seeing more specials and people are not watching or listening to comedy albums. They're watching them on Netflix or HBO or somewhere else. Not that comedy specials didn't exist before, but that's almost the go-to way to watch a comedy special. It's still a huge achievement and it shows how well his music holds up separate from the TV special that he did or the comedy special Uh, and talking about him not freaking out. I I found it online. I didn't know this. I'm a big fan of Bo Burnham, but he also apparently deals with anxiety issues. So let's hope he's uh, doing okay. And, you know, working on something new and finding satisfaction in what he's achieved because very successful as a YouTube vlogger or, you know, viral comedy sensation, very successful in standup, very successful as a director of other people's work like Jared Carmichael, very successful in movies. His film, Eighth Grade, terrific. And he was in the Emerald Fennel movie as an actor. And now that special really, you know, raised the bar yet again. So he's a real talent. So I hope he's doing well. What I could not find out was who handles his music publishing, because I wanted to know that to segue into our next story. Well, the performance performance rights group, I always uh, stumble over that. Performing rights, performance rights, it's performance rights groups. And uh, BMI is one of them. Uh, they were brought by a private equity group called Blue Mountain Capital for about $1.5 billion, roughly, because you know you always buy nonprofit companies for billions of dollars. <laughs> BMI now becomes a for-profit performing rights company, just like ASCAP and others. BMI says it can't compete anymore as a nonprofit. A chunk of the sale was distributed to the songwriters it represents. Yeah, you know, uh, I don't know much about performing or performance rights groups like BMI and ASCAP. I understand in general, people write a song and then they get residuals when it's played on the radio for a blanket license or when it's played in a video or when somebody streams it. Uh, 
a, you know, a tenth of a penny piles up, goes here, and everybody has to chip into the performing rights group, and it comes back to the artist, and they have to collect all that. But how they compete with each other, the services that they provide, and why BMI thinks it can't compete anymore. It used to be BMI and ASCAP. That's all you saw. And then there are other competing ones now, and apparently BMI says we just can't keep up with the Joneses. We need more money, and that means we have to go for profit. I don't know if that's true, but if people do know and can explain to us why they feel they can't compete anymore, whether they're just cashing in, you know, tell us. At the end of the show, in a few minutes, we'll give the info all over again. We're asking for help. I researched, couldn't figure it out. But what I did know is that Sperling and I I have a restraining order against Sperling, and I just, I just, you know, Sperling, you got to stop what you're doing. Well, you know, that's because we fight all the time. Uh, and We do, uh, like Hall and Oates. <laughs> we're, we're a team, yeah. a duo. Sperling and Giltz, very famous, just like Hall and Oates and Simon and Garfunkel and the Everly Brothers. They all fight like brothers, really, actually. What is it with duos anyway? I don't know. But last week, info trickled out about Daryl Hall and John Oates, both of whom have spent decades saying they are not Hall and Oates. Do not refer to them as Hall and Notes. If you look at their albums, they are never Hall and Notes. They are, in fact, two artists who just happen to record albums and tour at the same time, but would really rather you see them as individual acts, even on their albums where they're recording together, uh, not a two-headed monster. Seriously, they say this over and over in, the, in their interviews until it makes me sad. I'm like, oh my God, how much do they hate each other? They, but they've been saying this for decades, even at the peak. They're like, it's Daryl Hall and John Oates. We're not Hall and Oates. I mean, they hate it. So they are never billed as Hall and Oates, and they've been doing this. And when you know that, they are the best-selling duo of all time, and yet they hate being known as a duo. That should That's tell so you out of touch. You know. Yeah, about their relationship. Well done. Over a number of days, we learned about their latest fracas. Daryl Hall is suing John Oates. Hall has taken out a restraining order. Is John like leaving voicemail messages? Hall is rubbing it in John's face by touring and performing a ton of classic Hall and Oates songs. Well, now we know more. It turns out an investment company purchased a big song, a big chunk, I should say, of Daryl Hall's and John Oates publishing many years ago, and Hall has regretted it ever since. They, of course, now have a joint business venture that they have done together because this stuff gets complicated, just as Fleetwood Mac. And now, apparently, John Oates is ready to cash out like so many other people, and he wants to sell his share in their joint venture to that same company that already owns a chunk of their publishing rights and stuff. Daryl Hall says he has no right to do that. And, and John Oates definitely has no right to show any details about their said joint business venture to this third party. So that's the restraining order. It's not personal. It's not that he owes him 50 bucks for rent back in 1970. It's just he wants to stop the sale of John Oates' chunk of their joint venture until its legality is settled in court. And as far as him rubbing it in John Oates' face with his set list, he just had a show in Japan. He's touring solo, as John Oates does. They toured together in 2022. They do that every few years because that's where the big money is. No, he's not making a big deal. His set list always includes a lot of Hall & Oates sits. That's nothing new. Uh, weeks before this all happened, he was singing Daryl Hall and John Oates hits, like, uh, you know, like Perch, Private Eyes, and you name it. So that is not Oh, some you big, took away my uh, joke. I was going to oh, say, sorry. You're, saying, you're saying the details for that are for private eyes? <laughs> yeah, that's right. They're for, well, we're trying not to be People Magazine. Um, but, you know, um, one of the most successful groups of all time, and the more you read them and hear them talk, you're like, wow, 
would have sat yanked together for all eternity and they're so miserable about it. Talk about, you know, regrets of success. And uh, I can understand a little bit of Daryl Hall's because his best albums really are his solo work that has never been as successful as his work when he and John Oates are recording together. Anyway, uh, there is a new boy band. And you said, oh, that's so tacky about this uh, timing. No. Billboard just did a big feature, and we have a link in our show notes to As One. It's AS1, the number O-N-E, As One. That's a new boy band that's half Jewish and half Palestinian. Three Jewish guys and three Palestinian guys. They formed a boy band. It was formed like by a record label. You know, it was not something that happened organically, but hey, it worked for One Direction. And they've got a depressing backstory. The young men landed in LA to record their debut album the very day of the terrorist attack on Israel, followed soon by the Israeli assault on Gaza. So they'd come up with this idea. These guys were thrown together. Like, okay, we're going to record our debut album. You know, we can all get along. So, no, it's not cynical. It was not something to cash in. It was happening before this latest disaster. But you know what? If you're going to be a boy band of half Jewish and half Palestinian people, there's going to be some tragedy that's going to happen while your group is uh, is active. Uh, and certainly BTS, uh, the, the guys in, uh, in, uh, in As One, some of them will have to serve in the military if they haven't already. That's, I believe, required for most people in Israel who are citizens. BTS are in Korea. They, too, must join the military. Uh, three members are already in, and the other four are now officially joining soon. They'll all be out by 2025 when they're all expected to reunite as BTS, even though all of them have charted now as solo acts. It's big news in Korea, not since Elvis got his hair shaved, as there's been such excitement and interest in people joining the military. And you know what? The original boy band is back on the charts, the Beatles. Finally, we have info. Their red and blue albums, their greatest hit sets, those double albums, uh, one of the most influential greatest hit sets of all time, are at number 15 and 20 on the Billboard charts. So after all these years, that's really amazing to see. Well, John may be dead, but the Beatles, uh, you know, they, they've never been bigger. Well, no, that's not true entirely because they obviously have been bigger. But uh, <laughs> I, I will say that everybody's curious about this song now and then. Yeah, no, I'm curious. It's a big hit. It's a top 10 hit in the U.S., number one in the U.K. Uh, it grows on you. It's not an all-time classic, but it's, a, it's an enjoyable song, that's for sure. And I don't know about you, but uh, it's very sad to me that John died. I like to celebrate his birthday, not the day he was uh, assassinated. But um, it's always sad when someone dies, whether they're 40, like John Lennon, or 86, like Marty Croft. Marty Croft, the brains behind the kids' TV legends, Sid and Marty Croft, died at 86. His brother, Sid, is still going strong at 94. Marty was the one who made things happen, while Sid was the creative one. They're almost inexplicably famous for what can only be described as a series of very strange and unsuccessful TV shows for kids. Now, it's not that the Crofts never had a hit. Sid actually created one hit show on stage that made their name. It was a burlesque act with puppets. And then it was naughty. Think Avenue Q, if you saw that Broadway show. And it proved hugely successful in the 60s. And when Sid needed a hand after one assistant quit, Marty stepped in. That show toured and toured and toured and led to work creating a sexy female chorus line for Dean Martin's variety show of puppets, uh, work at amusement parks all over the country, all sorts of stuff. And when they later segued uh, to primetime variety shows, they also had a hit with the TV variety show Donnie and Marie, briefly. The show burst into the top 30 in its first season, but ratings tanked when fans found out that then 18-year-old Donnie was actually dating a girl and not off the market. 
<laughs> it's true. Plus, the Oddsman seized control of the show from the Crofts in 1977. So other than that, a stage show in the 60s and a brief flurry of excitement for Donnie Marie, the story of the Crofts is the story of one flop after another. H.R. Puffin stuff, Land of the Lost, close to a hit, Sigmund and the Sea Monsters, Lidsville, a TV show about hats, the Banana Splits, the Boogaloos, Far Out Space Nuts, and when they transition to variety shows, Barbara Mangel, the Bay City Rollers, Pink Lady and Jeff, one of the more infamous flops of all time, the Brady Bunch Hour, all came and went quickly. H.R. Puffin Stuff, 17 episodes. <laughs> they also did a kids show with puppets and Richard Pryor as the host. And a political spoof show with puppets called DC Follies. They even created arguably the first indoor amusement park in Atlanta in the late 70s. People with characters from Sid and Marty Croft. It closed after six months and became the headquarters for CNN. So why do we still remember them? Were their shows that great? They were fun. The shows were fun. They were weird, but syndication. The show's never added up to a hit. 17 episodes of this, 25 of that, 12 of that. But thanks to government regulations about Saturday morning TV and the need for content on Saturday morning and then in cable and so on, they were packaged together and stripped and aired over and over and over again. Plus, college students needed something to watch when they were getting stoned or trying to get over a hangover. And HR Puff and stuff worked just as well in the 70s as Teletubbies would in the 90s and 2000s. Plus, they really were distinctive. They looked like nothing else on the air. It's not like Pee Wee Herman's show, which is a genuine classic. These are weird shows that are campy and goofy and strange, but they have a very distinctive look. When you see one, you're like, oh, that's HR Puff and stuff. And you might have said that when you saw the TV commercials for McDonald's, Mayor McCheese, The Hamburglar, Grimace, totally HR Puff and stuff. And if you thought that, so did Sid and Mar Marty Croft, because they sued and reportedly won a seven-figure settlement. <laughs> finally director elliot silverstein just died we just found out about this he was 96 he directed the comic western cat blue and a man called horse with richard harris two of his biggest hit films he also did a lot of tv but he's most important for helping create the idea of the director's cut and making it part of the director's bill of rights elliot was helming an episode of the twilight zone and he wanted the editor to cut the finale in a certain way the editor refused and it was like, what do you mean you refuse? And he finds out he doesn't have any rights, really. He can make a suggestion. They consult with him, but he has no rights. And he was so upset that he campaigned and lobbied and helped create the idea of director's cut. He pushed for it. And ultimately, it became part of the director's bill of rights. And that became part of the contract agreement between the director's guild and the producers. And so now when people talk about getting director's cut, they can thank Elliot Silverstein. Well, that wraps up our coverage for this week, Michael. And uh, you know what? If you want to make sure that you not only hear this week's episode, well, you're already listening to this week's episode, but you want to hear next week's episode. And the way to do that is to subscribe to us in any place they give away podcasts for free. iTunes, Google Podcast Store, Microsoft Marketplace, Spotify. That's where you can find our show. You can subscribe to them there. You can rate and review them in some of those podcast aggregators. Links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find those ways to subscribe to us, ways to email us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call, leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888 567 
Sand. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle there. Twitter.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can find us on Facebook. All of that information, again, on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. And don't forget, their new single, Mother Nature, is out now. And their new album, Loss of Life, comes out February 23rd. Uh, Rolling Stone did a big profile of them recently and, and the recent viral success they've had on TikTok. We've got links to those, uh, the story and the new uh, new song in our show notes. Michael, guilts can be found online and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? <laughs> um, uh, live from Daryl's house. I can't find the website address, but if you search for it online, you'll find it. By the way, they have a website called Hall and A-N-D Oates. So it's not even Daryl Hall and John Oates. You'd think they would just redirect to that uh, and and make the official website Daryl Hall and John Oates, but they don't. And they're like the most successful duo and we really didn't like each other. But Daryl Hall has a terrific online show, even though he's kind of a jerk. He has a terrific online show. He is definitely the batter guy among the duo. And this online show is really good. It's him and other artists performing together. And he has a great collaboration over the years with Robert Fripp, a terrific talent in his own right. And the, one of the best albums Daryl Hall ever did was with Robert Fripp. So them together is really special. So if you've never watched that show, it's, it's well worth checking out. Well, if you can't find any of Michael's coverage on that particular website, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his coverage of the entertainment industry can be found. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. 